Chapter Three of the Range Dwellers by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The quarrel renewed. That night, by a close scratch, we made a little place Frosty said was one of the Bay State Lion Camps. I didn't know what a lion camp was, and it wasn't much for style, but it looked good to me after riding nearly all day in a snowstorm. Frosty cooked dinner and I made the coffee, and we didn't have such a bad time of it, although the storm held us there for two days. We sat by the little cook stove and told yarns, and I pumped Frosty just about dry of all he'd ever heard about Dad. I hadn't intended to write to Dad, but after hearing all I did, I couldn't help handing out a gentle hint that I was on. When I'd been at the Bay State Ranch for a week, I wrote him a letter that I felt squared my account with him. It was so short that I can repeat every word now. I said, Dear Dad, I am here. Though you sent me out here to reform me, I find the opportunities for unadulterated deviltry away ahead of Frisco. I saw our old neighbor, King, whom you may possibly remember. He still walks with a limp. By the way, Dad, it seems to me that when you were about twenty-five, you indulged in some damn poor pastimes yourself. Your dutiful son, Ellis. Dad never answered that letter. Montana, as viewed from the Bay State Ranch in March, struck me as being an unholy mixture of brown sodden hills and valleys, chill winds that never condescended to blow less than a gale, and dull scurrying clouds, with sometimes a day of sunshine that was bright as our own sun at home. You can't make me believe that our California sun bothers with any other country. I'd been used to a green world. I never would go to New York in the winter, because I hate the cold. And here I was, with the cold of New York, and with none of the ameliorations in the way of clubs and theaters and the like. There were the hills along Midas River shutting off the east, and hills to the south that Frosty told me went on for miles and miles, and on the north stretched White Divide, only it was brown and bleak, and several other undesirable things. When I looked at it, I used to wonder at men fighting over it. I did a heap of wondering those first few days. Taken in a lump, it wasn't my style, and I wasn't particular to keep my opinions a secret. For the ranch itself, it looked to me like a village of corrals and sheds and stables, evidently built with an eye to usefulness and with the idea that harmony of outline is a sin and not to be tolerated. The house was put up on the same plan, gave shelter to Perry Potter and the cook, had a big bare dining room where the men all ate together without napkins or other accessories of civilization, and a couple of bedrooms that were colder, if I remember correctly, than outdoors. I know that the water froze in my pitcher the first night, and that afterwards I performed my ablutions in the kitchen and dipped hot water out of a tank with a blue dipper. That first week I spent adjusting myself to the simple life and trying to form an unprejudiced opinion of my companions in exile. As for the said companions, they sort of stood back and sized up my points, good and bad, and I have a notion they laid heavy odds against me and had me down in the also-ran bunch. I overheard one of them remark when I was coming up from the stables, 
Here's the son and heir. Come, let's kill him. Another one drawled. What's the use? Bounty's run out. I was convinced that they regarded me as a frost. The same with Perry Potter, a grizzled little man with long, ragged beard and gray eyes that looked through you and away beyond. I had a feeling that Dad had told him to keep an eye on me and report any incipient growth of horse sense. I may have wronged him and Dad, but that is how I felt, and I didn't like him any better for it. He left me alone, and I raised the bet and left him alone so hard that I scarcely exchanged three sentences with him in a week. The first night he asked after Dad's health, and I told him the doctor wasn't making regular calls at the house. A day or so after, he said, how do you like the country? I said, damn the country, and closed that conversation. I don't remember that we had any more for a while. The cowboys were breaking horses to the saddle most of the time, for it was too early for roundup, I gathered. When I sat on the corral fence and watched the fun, I observed that I usually had my rail all to myself, and that the rest of the audience roosted somewhere else. Frosty Miller talked with me sometimes, without appearing to suffer any great pain, but Frosty was always the star actor when the curtain rose on a bronco-breaking act. As for the rest, they made it plain that I did not belong to their set, and I wasn't sending them my at-home cards, either. We were as haughty with each other as two society matrons when each aspires to be called leader. Then a blizzard that lasted five days came ripping down over that desolation, and everybody stuck close to shelter and amused themselves as they could. The cowboys played cards most of the time, seven-up or pitch or poker. They didn't ask me to take a hand, though I fancy they were under the impression that I didn't know how to play. I never was much for reading. It's too slow and tame. I'd much rather get out and live the story I like best. And there was nothing to read, anyway. I went rummaging in my trunks, and in the bottom of one I came across a punching bag and a set of gloves. Right there I took off my hat to Rankin, and begged his pardon for the unflattering names he'd been in the habit of hearing from me. I carried the things down, and put up the bag in an empty room at one end of the bunkhouse, and got busy. Frosty Miller came first to see what was up, and I got him to put on the gloves for a while. He knew something of the manly art, I discovered, and we went at it fast and furious. I think I broke up a game in the next room. The boys came to the door, one by one, and stood watching, until we had the full dozen for audience. Before anyone realized what was happening, we were playing together real pretty with the chilly shoulder barred and the social ice gone the way of a dewdrop in the sun. We boxed and wrestled, with much scientific discussion of full Nelsons and the like, and even fenced with sticks. I had them going there and could teach them things, and they were the willingest pupils a man ever had, docile and filled with a deep respect for their teacher, who knew all there was to know, or, if he didn't, he never let on. Before night, we had smashed three window panes, trimmed several faces down considerably, and got pretty well acquainted. I found out they weren't so far behind the old gang at home, for wanting all there is in the way of fun, and I believe they discovered that I was harmless. 
Before that storm let up, they were dealing cards to me and allowing me to get rid of the rest of the forty dollars Rankin had overlooked. I got some of it back. I went down and bunked with them because they had a stove and I didn't, and it was more sociable. Harry Potter and the cook were welcome to the house, I told them, except at mealtimes. And, more than all the rest, I could keep out of range of Perry Potter's eyes. I never could get used to that watch Willie grow way he had, or rid myself of the notion that he was sending Dad a daily report on my behavior. The next thing, when the weather quit sifting snow and turned on the balmy breezes and sunshine, I was down in the corrals in my chaps and spurs, learning things about horses that I never suspected before. When I did something unusually foolish, the boys were good enough to remember my boxing and fencing and such little accomplishments, and did not withdraw their favor. So I went on, butting into every new game that came up, and taking all bets regardless, and actually began to wise up a little and to forget a few of my grievances. I was down in the corral one day, saddling Shylock, so named because he tried to exact a pound of flesh every time I turned my back or in other ways seemed off my guard. And when I was looping up the latigo, I discovered that the alliterative Mr. Potter was roosting on the fence, watching me with those needle-pointed eyes of his. I wondered if he was about to repair another report for Dad. Do you want to be put on the payroll? he asked, without any preamble, when he caught my glance. Yes, if I'm earning wages. The laborer is worthy of his hire, I believe, I retorted loftily. The fact was, I was strapped again. And though one did not need money on the Bay State Ranch, it's a good thing to have around. He grinned into his coffee. Well, he said, you've been pretty busy the last three weeks, but I ain't had any orders to hire a boxing master for the boys. I don't know as that'd rightly come under the head of legitimate expenses. Boxing masters come high, I've heard. Are you going on Roundup? Sure, I answered in an exact copy, as near as I could make it, of Frosty Miller's intonation. I was making Frosty my model those days. He said, All right, your pay starts on the 15th of next month, which was April. Then he got down from the fence and went off and I mounted Shylock and rode away to Laurel after the mail. Not that I expected any, for no one but Dad knew where I was, and I hadn't heard a word from him, though I knew he wrote to Perry Potter, or his secretary did, every week or so. Really, I don't think a father ought to be so chesty with the only son he's got, even if the son is a no-account young cub. I was standing in the post office, which was a store and saloon as well, when an old fellow with stubby whiskers and a jaw that looked as though it had been trimmed square with a rule, and a limp that made me know at once who he was, came in. He was standing at the little square window talking to the postmaster and waving his pipe to emphasize what he said, when a horse went past the door on the dead run, with bridle reins flying. A fellow rushed out past us. It was his horse and hit old King's elbow a clip as he went by. The pipe went about ten feet and landed in a pickle keg. I went after it and fished it out for the old fellow, not so much because I'm filled with a natural courtesy, 
as because I was curious to know the man that had got the best of Dad. He thanked me, and asked me across the saloon side of the room to drink with him. "'I don't know as I've ever met you before, young man,' he said, eyeing me puzzled. "'Your face is familiar, though. Been in this country long?' "'No,' I said. "'A little over a month is all.' "'Well, if you ever happen around my way, King's Highway, they call my place, stop and see me. Want to stay long out here?' "'I think so,' I replied, motioning the waiter, bar slave they call him in Montana, to refill our glasses. "'And I'll be glad to call some day, when I happen in your neighborhood. And if you ever ride over toward the Bay State, be sure to stop.' "'Well, say!' Old King turned the color of a ripe prune. Every hair in that stubble of beard stood straight out from his chin, and he looked as if murder would be a pleasant thing. He took the glass and deliberately emptied the whiskey on the floor. John Carleton's son, eh? I might have knowed it. You look enough like him. Me drink with a son of John Carleton? That breed of wolves had better not come howling around my door. I asked you to come to King's Highway, young man, and I don't take it back. You can come, but you'll get the same sort of welcome I'd give that. Right there, I got my hand on his throttle. He was an old man, comparatively, and I didn't want to hurt him. But no man under heaven can call my dad the names he did, and I told him so. I don't want to dig up the old quarrel, King. I said, shaking him a bit with one hand, just to emphasize my words. But you got to speak civilly of Dad, or by the Lord, I'll turn you across my knee and administer a stinging rebuke. He tried to squirm loose, and to reach behind him with that suggestive movement that breeds trouble among men of the plains. But I held his arm so he couldn't move, the while I told him a lot of things about true politeness. Things that I wasn't living up to worth mentioning. He yelled at the postmaster to grab me, and the fellow tried it. I backed into a corner and held old King in front of me as a bulwark, warranted bulletproof, and wondered what kind of hornet's nest I'd got into. The waiter and the postmaster were both looking for an opening, and I remembered that I was on old King's territory, and they were after holding their jobs. I don't know how it would have ended, I suppose they'd have got me eventually. But Perry Potter walked in, and it didn't seem to take him all day to savvy the situation. He whipped out a gun and leveled it at the enemy, and told me to scoot and get on my horse. Scoot nothing, I yelled back. What about you in the meantime? Do you think I'm going to leave them to clean you up? He smiled sourly at me. I've held my own with this bunch of trouble hunters for thirty year, he said dryly. I guess you ain't got any reason to be alarmed. Come out of that corner and let em alone. I don't, to this day, know why I did it, but I quit hugging old King, and the other two fell back and gave me a clear path to the door. King was blackguarding dead, and I couldn't stand for it, I explained to Perry Potter as I went by. If you're not going, I won't. I've got a letter to mail, he said, calm as if he were in his own corral. You went off before I got a chance to give it to you. I'll be out in a minute. 
He went and slipped the letter into the mailbox, turned his back on the three, and walked out as if nothing had happened. Perhaps he knew that I was watching them, in a mood to do things if they offered to touch him. But they didn't, and we mounted our horses and rode away, and Perry Potter never mentioned the affair to me, then or after. I don't think we spoke on the way to the ranch. I was busy wishing I'd been around in that part of the world thirty years before, and thinking what a lot of fun I'd missed by not being as old as Dad. A quarrel thirty years old is either mighty stale and unprofitable, or else, like wine, it improves with age. I meant to ride over to King's Highway some day, and see how he would have welcomed Dad thirty years before. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Penn